Evolutionists once referred more often to evidence from the fossil record. Does such evidence exist? Do bones and artifacts from millions of years ago tell a story, offer convincing proof that man evolved from simple organisms? What says the scientific record? The scientific record on paleontology has produced a wealth of data informing us of the evolution not just of humans, but of innumerable other organisms too. I don't know what you think you mean when you say that evolutionists once referred more often to the fossil record. We still do, of course, but now we also have phylogenetics, which confirms what we saw in the geologic column. Consequently, taxonomic classifications are now a twin-nested hierarchy. We can now classify organisms both by morphology and by genetics, which actually maps our evolution better than any fossil could. Remember, we want facts, proof, not theories requiring faith to believe them. I'm glad that you implicitly admit that faith is a bad thing, but you don't know what a theory is. A scientific theory is a study of facts, one which includes testable hypotheses and demonstrable laws of nature. So there's no faith required, ever. Cell theory, atomic theory, germ theory, and the theory of gravity do not require that we believe in cells, atoms, germs, or gravity on faith. We have proof for all of these, just like we do for evolution. In the 1920s, a single tooth was found in western Nebraska at Snake Creek Quarry. Scientists offered this tooth as proof evolution had occurred and purported it to be a missing link. Because of where it was found, the human-like sketch drawn around it was called Nebraska Man. Much to-do was made of this discovery. It was big news. Evolutionists rejoiced. But a funny thing happened on the way to proof of evolution. Five years later, someone decided to ask a farmer his opinion of the tooth. His answer? It's a pig's tooth. More excavation at the site proved the rest of the skeleton was indeed a pig. Wow, you got all of that wrong. Apart from the fact that a tooth was found in Nebraska. It was found in 1917, not in the 1920s, and it was not offered as proof that evolution happened either. The evidence previously amassed by then had already established a conclusive case. In fact, that was the problem. The claim that an early human species existed in North America didn't fit with the evidence we already had. One popular magazine ran a sensationalized story, and unlike religion, science doesn't like sensationalism. So every paleontologist, including the one who found the tooth, criticized the magazine. So not even one evolutionary scientist rejoiced at this. Instead, the entire scientific community rejected Nebraska Man as being any sort of human. No one talked to any pig farmers either. They did what scientists do. They pointed out that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and that a single tooth was not enough to refute what we already knew about human evolution. They demanded he produce more and better evidence. They never found the rest of the skeleton either. After five years of looking, the only scientist who ever thought this was a human tooth realized that he had misidentified it because it wasn't well preserved and was badly worn. So much to his own personal humiliation, he authorized a public retraction admitting that the tooth more likely came from an extinct relative of the peccary, which is close enough to a pig that not many people would correct you. But otherwise, yeah, you got every part of that wrong. It is often bones or just bone fragments, many of which have been determined to be hoaxes, that cause evolutionists to assert that important links from the fossil record have been found. 
To say that many of these fossils are hoaxes is a lie. There's only ever been one hoax which fooled any evolutionary scientist, and that was early on. Piltdown Man was cleverly constructed and chemically treated by professionals way back before we knew much about the fossil record. And the legitimate evidence we continue to find, you know, the stuff you don't ever talk about, is what called it into question. The more we learned about our evolution from legitimate fossil finds that were definitely not fraudulent, the more this one item, the one fraudulent one, stuck out as an anomaly. Once we had the technology to test it, the hoax was exposed. Scientists tend to be skeptical, and they learn. So there were a couple of other attempted hoaxes since then, but none which fooled any of the scientists. Merely because someone found a piece of bone, sophisticated artist renderings are presented, given names, and offered as convincing visual proof that evolution occurred. Poppycock. You're right, that is poppycock, because it doesn't happen. I mean, there are many ways to prove that evolution happened, but no one fossil could do it. It kind of depends on how many trees it takes to make a forest. Complete skeletons are rare, but we have them. And even when we don't, we still usually have enough to know what it is. For example, if all you found was this, would you know it was human, or would you think that it might have been a centaur? If someone finds a piece of bone that doesn't match anything living today, then we know it came from something else, but we don't always know what else it is. It has to have a name because it existed, and it's different than anything we have today. So if it's unknown, then only partial illustrations can be done, and for some fossils, they won't even do that. Look at Tiktaalik, a very important fossil transition from fish to amphibian frame. They have a cast of half of it, and artists are free to do what they like, and they'll render impressions of the entire thing, but in the scientific literature, they only show what they know. If we have a partial skeleton, then they'll render the general shape expected according to its clade and just show the bones that we have. Orse man was based on what turned out to be the skull cap of a donkey. No. What you're calling Orse man wasn't a skull cap, but a skull fragment, one which could have been from a hominid, as indicated in this picture, or it could have been from a baby equid, but not necessarily a donkey, or it could have been from something else. The fossil isn't an important one because it's still never been identified despite numerous studies. So it's a little dishonest to say that it came from a donkey, as if there was any way that anyone could know that. Ramapithecus man was simply a baboon skull. No one calls it Ramapithecus man, and the reason they never did is because it's considered an ancestor of today's orangutans. It could not be confused with any baboon, which live on a different continent. Piltdown man was an outright hoax. A hoax perpetuated against evolutionary scientists and which was discovered and refuted by evolutionary scientists. If creationists knew how to expose a hoax, there wouldn't be creationists anymore. And Neanderthal man was later determined to be severely bow-legged because he had rickets. They found hundreds of Neanderthal men, women, and children and their DNA confirming a genetic distinction from Homo sapiens. None of them had rickets, but they all do show a suite of morphological distinctions from modern humans. And the more recent finds show more exaggerated distinctions, just as you would expect from a group that branched off our lineage and began growing apart their own way. He was not proof from the fossil record of a half-ape, half-man, transitional creature. Nor were they ever supposed to be. Neanderthals are our cousins, not our ancestors. We were both descended from Homo erectus, and that is inarguable. Homo erectus is also much more like your idea of an ape-man. But it has now been morphologically and genetically confirmed that man is a subset of apes in the same way that we are a subset of vertebrates or mammals. This is something we can prove conclusively. So asking for an ape man is just as silly as asking for a mammal man or a half dachshund, half dog. There is a certain desperation in the thinking and actions of many evolutionary scientists. 
The next quotes demonstrate their approach. A five million year old piece of bone that was thought to be the collarbone of a human-like creature is actually part of a dolphin rib. Anthropologist Dr. Tim White stated, the problem with a lot of anthropologists is that they want so much to find a hominid, human, that any scrap of bone becomes a hominid bone. This comes from a professor of physics. In fact, Evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. Thank you for the implicit admission that religion is bad because it causes people to bend to the truth to fit with it. And that's what you've been doing all along. For example, you've blended three separate comments from three different people as if they were all related. It's important to note that your first two quotes came from scientific sources because they advise against the over-anxious human nature of desperate thinking that you so falsely allege. In science, unlike religion, accuracy and accountability are paramount. If you make a mistake in science, it counts against your reputation forever. If you get something wrong in religion, so what? Religion is always wrong about everything anyway. Your third quote is completely wrong, however, and not just for the allegation, which, if true, would immediately be exposed in the peer review process. Evolution has become a religion in the sense that it is in no sense even like a religion. A religion is a faith-based belief system promising some sort of afterlife. Evolution is a demonstrable and measurably accurate understanding of how population genetics contributes to biodiversity. Because it is a science, it rejects faith and consequently will not promote anything that is not evidently true, which is what all religions do. It's about all that religion does. There are no threats, real or supernatural, against anyone who doubts evolution either, which religion typically has. So evolution meets none of the criteria of a religion. Let's summarize. No transitional forms exist anywhere in the fossil record. Wrong. For decades, they've been finding new transitional species every year. At present, there are hundreds and hundreds of definite transitions, even according to the strictest definition of that word. I made a video listing and explaining many of these and updating a zoological list that already included some 300 transitions, and that list was compiled at the turn of the century. So no, there are numerous transitions throughout the fossil record. While evolutionists will suggest it took 50 million years for a fish to evolve into an amphibian, the simple truth is there are no transitional fossils to prove it. Your uh, simple truth is a complete lie. The sequence from sarcopterygian fish to animals you would recognize as amphibians begins with a line of four-legged, lobed fin fish like Pandorichthys or Elginerpeton, pictured here. This is my own rendering, by the way. I sent it to Cambridge professor Jennifer Clack, an expert in Devonian tetrapod evolution. She said the only thing that I got wrong with this is I put it in a marine environment and these were aquatic. So Elginerpeton hails from 375 million years ago, and this evolutionary sequence continues through Anthostega, which is my favorite transitional species. It is essentially the Darwin fish. It represents the point where it is neither fish nor a tetrapod, yet both at the same time. Some creationists argue that it's 100% on this side, and some say it's 100% on this other side. And when creationists can't agree and say that it's 100% on both sides at the same time, that's when you know you've got a real transitional species. Tiktaalik looked like this, or a later stage of this, a fish with more amphibian features and even a neck. And Tiktaalik would be on this list too, but this was posted online in 1998, and Tiktaalik wasn't discovered until 2004. See how things change? Anyway, the line moves on to Ichthyostega, which is mostly amphibian and doesn't have any internal gills anymore. 
but it probably had external gills like baby salamanders do because its skeleton wasn't yet adapted for dry land and it still had bone bars in its ray fin tail. And we'll skip a few and jump over to Simuria. These lived in the Permian about 100 million years after Elgin Erpaton. And it still isn't an amphibian because they appear as a sister clade to reptiles beginning with Selenodonsaurus. This is another transition, but it's more like a half amphibian, half reptile. So you're wrong again. We do have the fossils to prove it. There are no creatures found that evidence partial fins partial feet, or partially evolved brains, legs, eyes, organs, or other body parts. We've got all that in the sequence I just showed you. Eyes came first, and they're the organ most people talk about when they're describing evolution. I'll cover this in more detail later in the series. For now, we'll look at partial fins. Now, these first developed in placodonts before fish developed jaws. And the evolution of the jaw is well documented too, being derived from gill bars. Partial feet begin with all foot bones appearing disassembled in the fins of Ceripterus. They don't become intelligible as feet until you get to Acanthostega. And notice that Acanthostega had eight toes, Ichthyostega had seven toes, and Telerpaton had six. A curious side note, the gene for six fingers in humans is actually dominant. Strange but true. Partially evolved organs are hard to find because soft parts rarely fossilize, but they're demonstrated by another lobed fin fish that still lives today. The polypterus has an asymmetric distension in its buoyancy bladder, and that distension constitutes a lung. That's how they breathe in the warm, oxygen-depleted waters where they live. Finally, evolved brains, or partially evolved brains, are indicated in phylogeny, where the mammal brain is essentially added on to a reptile brain, which is added on to an amphibian brain, which is added on to, or just an enhancement of the original fish brain. And of course, skull capacities bear that out in expectation in the fossil record. So again, you're completely wrong on all points. Even Darwin, the father of evolution, admitted, why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all nature in confusion instead of the species being, as we see them, well-defined? This is an example of why Darwin would himself say his theory is false and why he would be the first to disown it in light of what science has learned. Darwin made several predictions dependent on his theory and in later editions of his definitive work, he bragged that some of them had already come true, including the first one and one of the most significant of all transitional species discovered so far. Darwin saw that the legs of birds were exactly like those of dinosaurs and he saw that the wings of birds looked also like the hands of dinosaurs but with the fingers fused together. So he predicted that if his theory were correct and birds actually descend from dinosaurs, then there should be a bird found in the fossil record with unfused wing fingers. And they found several different types to fulfill his prediction, but the one that they found first had teeth instead of a beak and was twice mistaken for a dinosaur because their skeletons are identical. Now we know that birds are the last living lineage of dinosaurs. Let's see how bone fragments are supposed to represent entire human skeletons within various stages of the fossil record. Dr. Richard Leakey, considered the most famous fossil anthropologist in the world, said the skull of his famous discovery, Lucy, is so incomplete that it is mostly imagination made of plaster of Paris. Your source is creation research. 
Did Richard Leakey ever write for creation research? No, of course not. When you get your information from creationist sources, almost all of it is wrong. For one thing, Richard Leakey didn't discover Lucy. That was someone else. Leakey's most famous discovery was Homo rudolfensis. I thought your quote might be referring to that, but I couldn't find the original source. I googled this quote and found it on sites promoting Christian, Muslim, and even Hindu creationism, but I couldn't find it on any legitimate site. This is not the first time that this has happened. Another time the creationist quote mined Dr. Leakey with an untraceable citation, I wrote to the man himself for clarification. And Dr. Leakey emailed me back to say that the creationist movement is led by a dishonest bunch of operators and misquotation is the hallmark of their work. The stupidity of these so-called religious fanatics continues to astonish me. He admitted no firm conclusions could be made about what species she was, even though she was assigned the age of three and a half to four million years old. Lucy was 3.2 million years old, and she was just the first of her species to be discovered. More than 100 other individuals have been discovered from that species, and other similar species have been found as well. There's no ambiguity with Lucy like there was with a couple of things that Leakey discovered. But then you thought that Leakey discovered Lucy. So we have no idea what find you think you're talking about. You probably don't even know that there's four to 5,000 different individuals we could be talking about. I have personally seen a photograph of her supposed skeleton, and it's meaningless. Let me explain to you what it means. But first, you personally saw her photograph? I mean, you personally Googled it like everybody else could do? What do you mean a supposed skeleton? Is it a skeleton or not? Does it belong to the person it was when it was alive? Supposed skeleton, my ass. The reason that Lucy and other individuals of her species and other similar species found from her genus are so important is that they were predicted by Darwin. That if his theory was true, and only if his theory was true, we would find a species roughly halfway between modern humans and the apes that were known in Darwin's day. Now, they already knew about Homo erectus, and that already meets your definition of an ape man, but that wasn't halfway. They'd also found 50 more species of apes, all extinct, not the same that we have today. And that also shouldn't be true if there was any truth to creationism, which we know there isn't. But then in 1974, they found what Darwin predicted. The so-called missing link was identified because her hands, feet, teeth, pelvis, skull, and other physical characteristics were all pretty much exactly halfway between those of modern men and modern apes. She was exactly what creationists challenged us to find, and those creationists are now pretending that we never found it, or that the skeleton you're looking at is somehow supposed rather than real. The front cover of a well-known national news magazine showed a picture of an ape's head in an article titled, How Apes Became Human. The article was an outright pitiful attempt to connect a toe bone to other bones found 10 miles away and then to depict them as proof of evolution. Again, we have no citation, but I think I remember this article. Now, bones of the same species don't have to come from the same location unless they're from the same individual. Otherwise, we should expect that there would be more than one individual in a 10-mile range. But remember, the point is that the apes that they're talking about are just barely people. And even if you don't know anything about cladistics, and you don't, you would still have to recognize her as both an ape and a person, albeit not a very smart one. She and others like her should not exist except only if evolution is real, which it obviously is anyway. And we already knew that before she added her proof to the case. 
Of course, the article speaks of evolution as a foregone conclusion. It was filled with uncertain phrases, however, like close to answering what appears to be. People have speculated. We are suggesting. Still something of a mystery. Probably, about, presumably, and maybe. These phrases are endless. Yet mere artwork and diagrams make the flimsy speculative evidence look like absolute proof. The evidence is neither flimsy nor speculative. It is rock-solid, overwhelming, and has been certainly confirmed many ways by many means. Again, I wish this was a two-way conversation so that I could prove the point to your satisfaction directly. But, of course, religion is all about pretending, and creationism is a denial of reality, and that's why all my challenges to prove evolution typically end the same way, with my opponent essentially covering their ears and closing their eyes and saying, I can't see any evidence! You're not showing me any evidence! And then they ask, after I prove something wrong, they say, why can't I believe what I want to believe? Why would you want to believe something if you already know that it isn't even probably true? The reader is left with the impression the writers were themselves uncertain and uncomfortable. Mixed with baseless assumptions, the artwork lends credibility through sensationalism, giving it saleability. In the end, it was false advertising in blatant form. All the baseless assumptions are yours. Evolution provides data so that we can prove that it's true. But science prohibits sensationalism and holds reputations accountable for inaccuracies. So scientists cannot assert as fact that which is not evidently true, the way religious people do. Evolution is a science, not a belief system. It's not about making people believe. It's an investigation of the facts. So when a scientist says probably, it means that there's an indicated probability of greater than 50%. That's how intellectually honest and accountable people conduct themselves, although I'm sure you wouldn't understand that either. Grasp this. There are no links from plants to animals, reptiles to birds and mammals, etc. Plants and animals arose separately from a series of protist-like ancestors, so there wouldn't be any links between them. But grasp this. We have lots and lots of transitions between reptiles and birds, and we have so many transitions between what you would call a reptile and mammals that paleontologists and zoologists can't tell when it stops being one and becomes the other. In both lineages, there are so many insensibly fine links, just as Darwin predicted, that they are clearly both. What you have just asserted is demonstrably wrong. This is not a matter of opinion. This is something we can prove. The fossil record shows that animals appear suddenly. No, it doesn't. It shows the first animals appearing in the Vendian period, with most phyla subsequently developing in the Cambrian through Ordovician periods, a span of more than 100 million years. And that's just for the phyla. Reptiles, mammals, and amphibians don't appear until another couple hundred million years later. And none of the animals that you showed in your slide existed until a few million years ago, and more than 600 million years after the first animal forms appeared. When this was recognized, the whole theory of microevolution collapsed, and evolutionists admitted as much. No, they didn't. It's hard to keep up correcting you when every sentence you utter is full of so much wrong. Neither those who accept science nor anyone else ever admitted the collapse of microevolution because it never happened, because it can't happen, and not just because the thing that you thought was realized never happened either. Microevolution never collapsed because one, it was never a theory, and two, the thing that you're talking about wouldn't have collapsed it anyway, even if you were right about that part, which you're not. 
Microevolution is small-scale evolution, variation within a species. It explains why there are many different breeds of dogs within a single interfertile population. That is still a universally accepted concept, even among creationists. Even the most pig-ignorant religious fanatic still accepts microevolution. Well, until I happen to cross you anyway. They then decided that possibly the fossil record could best be described as indicating macroevolution, sometimes referred to as punctuated equilibrium or the hopeful monster theory. This ludicrous idea suggests a reptile could suddenly lay an egg that would hatch a bird. Of course, since this would be a miracle, it would require God to perform it. But evolutionists can't have that. So evolutionists should probably best be thought of as believing in godless miracles. Now that's a religion worth avoiding. If I sound like I'm mocking them, it's because I am. Any who mock God's existence surely believe we should at least have license to mock them. Their teaching is a disgrace and they embarrass themselves saying they believe it. Don't you believe them? After all the bewildering inanity that just fell out of your mouth, you think we're embarrassing ourselves? You never have any idea what you're talking about, ever. You're absolutely wrong about absolutely everything. Do you have a word to describe someone who speaks with authority, even when they haven't got the first fucking clue what they're talking about? Here in the South, we call that talking out of your ass. And just to clarify, Microevolution is variation within a species. Macroevolution is variation between species. Obviously, it is impossible to tell whether extinct species used to be chemically interfertile. So fossils can't distinguish microevolution. That and macroevolution is also large scale, and the fossil record extends hundreds of millions of years. That's as large scale as it gets. So we're obviously not talking about anything so limited as breeds of dogs being derived in the last few thousand years. It goes much further than that. Macroevolution is never referred to as punctuated equilibrium either. Punk eek is an evolutionary law or principle proposed by Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge in 1972 that natural selection is not always a constant process beyond minimizing the effects of genetic drift, that species may achieve stasis during periods of balance and not experience selective pressures until there's a significant change in the dynamics of their environment. So there's equilibrium punctuated by occasional changes. The hopeful monster isn't the same as macroevolution or punctuated equilibrium. It's a third, completely different and largely discredited concept proposed by geneticist Richard Goldschmidt back in 1940. He thought that speciation could not occur gradually and that we would need relatively sudden accumulations of coordinated mutations. But speciation has since been observed under both conditions. So this has been demonstrated not to be necessary. What you're talking about, however, is none of the above. You have every definition wrong, and you have them all confused with something else. Your example conveniently omits a couple hundred million years worth of intermediates in the logical fallacy of reducio ad absurdum. Well, that's if you knew anything. Since you obviously don't, then it's the fallacy of incredulity, which has been your staple argument throughout this series. But willful ignorance and your inability to understand this subject is not a critique against it and cannot compete against people who are smarter and more learned than you, who know this subject and can actually prove their point while educating you in the process. Now that's a religion worth avoiding. If I sound like I'm mocking them, it's because I am. Any who mock God's existence surely believe we should at least have license to mock them.